This message comes from Capital One. Your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services backed by the strength of a top 10 commercial bank. Visit CapitalOne.com slash commercial. Member FDIC. Just a quick heads up before we start the show. The news is rapidly changing and things may have changed by the time you hear this episode. Stay up to date with news by listening to your local NPR member station and visiting npr.org for all the latest. Thanks for listening. It's been 19 days since Hamas's surprise attack on Israel. Nearly 8,000 people have been killed, more than 1,400 people in Israel most killed on October 7th, and more than 6,500 in Gaza since airstrikes on that enclave began. Since that attack by Hamas, the leaders of several Western countries have traveled to Israel to show their support, including President Biden, U.K. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak, and this week, French President Emmanuel Macron. An emergency war cabinet was sworn in nearly two weeks ago to handle Israel's response to Hamas. And while Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is getting public support from leaders overseas, he's facing criticism at home and from the U.N. Secretary General yesterday. A new poll in the Mahriv newspaper suggests up to 80 percent of Israelis believe Netanyahu must take responsibility for the security failures that led to the October 7th attack. We've discussed Palestinian leadership and this moment in Palestinian history. Today, we're going to get an update on the state of domestic politics in Israel. How do Israelis feel about who's making war decisions? I'm David Gura, in for Jen White. You're listening to the 1A podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. We'll be back with our panel in just a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Teladoc Health. There are lots of reasons for wanting to be healthy. Family, work, living a fuller life. Teladoc Health understands. Whether you have diabetes, high blood pressure, or just need to manage your weight, Teladoc Health can help. Visit TeladocHealth.com slash What's Your Why for more information. That's T-E-L-A-D-O-C Health slash What's Your Why. This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor BetterHelp. When you keep your stress bottled up, it can eat away at you. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to make them better. Try BetterHelp Online Therapy, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp at BetterHelp.com NPR today to get 10% off your first month. Let's get into it and welcome our guest. Greg Karlstrom is the Middle East correspondent for The Economist. He's also the author of the book, How Long Will Israel Survive? The Threat from Within. He joins us from Dubai. Also with us is Mayra Zonshine. She's a senior analyst on Israel-Palestine at the International Crisis Group. She joins us from Israel. And Laura E. Adkins is the opinion editor at The Forward, a news organization for a Jewish-American audience. And Laura has been reporting in Israel since the war began. Thank you all for being here. And Greg, let me start with you. I mentioned this emergency war cabinet and this new unity government in Israel that came together five days after Hamas killed more than 1,400 people in Israel and took more than 200 hostages. Here's how some Israelis reacted to the creation of that body shortly after its formation on Al Jazeera English. I want this to be good for everyone. We need calm and unity. They needed to stop with all this political mess. 
This is important to reassure the nation and all the parents that lost their loved ones and provide people with a sense of security. Greg, I linger on that phrase, this political mess, stopping this political mess. How has the political landscape changed in Israel over these last few weeks? Well, I think the short answer is it hasn't stopped the political mess. The idea of this war cabinet was that uh, it would centralize decision-making about the war within a, a small handful of officials, and it would marginalize some of far-right political figures who have been part of Prime Minister Netanyahu's cabinet over the past year. So the core of the cabinet is the Prime Minister Netanyahu, uh, Yoav Gallant, who is the defense minister, uh, and then the uh, uh, sorry, I'm blanking. Uh, the defense minister and uh, Benny Gantz, uh, mm. who is a former army chief who who joined and also heads one of the largest opposition parties. There are a couple of other observers, Gadi Eisenkot, another former army chief, and then Ron Dermer, uh, who is Netanyahu's confidant. And so these five men are supposed to be setting policy about the war. These men are also feuding with each other. There have been uh, various reports in the Israeli media over the past few days about bad blood between Netanyahu and Gallant the defense minister, a defense minister that Netanyahu tried to fire back in March because of disagreements about the judicial reforms that uh, the Netanyahu government is trying to pass. Uh, There's also been fighting between Netanyahu and the army about whether or not to go ahead with this ground offensive that has been in the works for more than two weeks now. Uh, And the prime minister, it seems, by all accounts, uh, is being very indecisive about whether to go ahead with that offensive. So there are still, even within this inner war cabinet, uh, serious disagreements and and the broader political mess, as as those people put it before, uh, that's still here because the far-right government that Netanyahu formed after the elections last year, that government is also still in place. Laura Atkins, as you've been talking to people in Israel, how much is politics a preoccupation uh, at this moment? How, How closely are they paying attention to what Greg was just describing? I mean, something important to understand is a lot of the communities that were attacked on October 7th are the kibbutzim, which are generally pretty left-wing and generally pretty involved with the peace movement domestically and also heavily involved in the organizations that have been protesting the Netanyahu administration for the better part of the year. Um, And, you know, by day one, there's a lot of talk sometimes to not bring up politics after an emergency. Mm. By day one, Amir Tibon, who writes for Haaretz and is a good friend um, and spent the day hiding with his children, waiting for the army to arrive. They never did. His father rescued him. Um, Immediately, they pointed out the failure of the Netanyahu administration here. The whole bargain, tacit agreement between the country and people located in these communities within a few kilometers of Gaza is that they're filling up the land with the understanding that the army will always be there to protect them and the Iron Dome will always be there to protect them from rockets. And we just saw such a catastrophic failure on October 7th in in many ways. And so much of that stems from fundamental assumptions that Netanyahu made that just turned out to be wrong. Mirav, pick it up there, if you would, uh, on those failures and the degree to which there has been uh, a, a look, a close look at, at how that could have happened and, and might have happened and, and what sense you're getting of the anger and outrage and surprise at what happened on October 7th. Right. Well, I mean, there was anger and outrage uh, in much of the country uh, against this government even before October 7th. So now it's it's just uh, it's reached a, a point where at the one hand you have a, a public which polls show want Netanyahu out. Some want them, him out now. 
some want him out after the war. I think Israelis in general are at a loss for what to do at this moment because they're still in trauma, they're still in shock, and they're collecting themselves. And also citizens right now are making up the backbone of, of the country in all ways. They're, they're the ones who are organizing. They're the ones who are helping. Um, the, the, the country itself is not functioning properly. And this has to do with years and years of corruption uh, by the Netanyahu government and Netanyahu himself and consolidation of power and controlling the media. And so in a lot of ways, the failure um, of October 7th is is not just a military intelligence failure. It's not even just a failure of Netanyahu specifically as his role currently. It's a failure of an Israeli approach and policy on Gaza in particular and the Palestinians in general, uh, where you could just kind of sideline them and build up your Iron Dome and build up your military might and normalize relations with Arab countries that you're not at war with and think that everything will be fine. So the question here is not whether Israelis are critical of Netanyahu because they are, and they are on all kinds of levels. And you're even hearing residents of the South saying, we don't want you to bomb Gaza um, relentlessly because that's not going to bring us security. So you're actually hearing a lot of those voices. I think the real question going forward will be, will Israelis understand or try to push for a, a whole new strategy, a whole new system of government that would actually address their needs? And that's something that obviously we're not seeing yet, and we'll have to wait and see. But I think that's the real question, because, you know, criticizing Netanyahu, everybody does. That's that's the easy part. Laura, let me ask you just about something that, that Marov just said, and that is that the, the, the government is in this kind of pause or not functioning. And I just wonder if you could kind of give us a sense of the way that the country, the way that politics are operating right now. We're, we're at this moment where there is the prospect of this land invasion. People have been called into service what what is the mood, for lack of a better word, there in Israel as we're in this kind of um, vacuum, this waiting game? Yeah, um, Mayrov said very important things. I think it's also important to remember that Netanyahu has been actively empowering Hamas to divide the Palestinians for over fourteen years. This was a very deliberate strategy, and the gamble that he made was keeping Hamas, you know, well fed, well funded. But, you know, it's just a few rockets here and there from time to time would keep them separate and really crush any hopes for a unified Palestinian state or a unified Palestinian movement. Um, and people know that this is well documented. Haaretz in particular has written extensively on this in the last couple of weeks. But the reservists are running the country right now, not the reservists that have been called up, a group mm -hmm. called Achim Laneshek, Brothers in Arms. Everywhere across the country, you go to the farms, they're filling volunteers, you go to the Tel Aviv Expo Center, they literally have a war room to find the hostages using archaeological maps and some of Israel's best tech workers. Um, the Netanyahu administration has also really been out to lunch in terms of communicating what's happening, both internally and there have been zero foreign interviews um, from Netanyahu since this all started, which for someone who prides himself on spinning things to the English-speaking press, it's it's quite astonishing. Um, but as Mayrov said, people are really still reeling, but civil society is, is what's keeping Israel together right now. I, I think it is important to note that there is very broad support from the left to the right that it's intolerable to live with Hamas in its current iteration. And within the Israeli public, the idea of a ceasefire right now is definitely not something that's popular. But at the same time, you know, Israel is dealing with a government that not only has empowered Hamas for, for years and years, but has 
demonstrated that it's ineffective at, at even running the basic functions of government. And Laura, very quickly, I mean, you've been reporting on communities that are kind of doing a lot of work themselves to to find hostages kidnapped by, by Hamas. Place that in this context as well, that, that you have civilians doing this work that I guess you would expect the government to be uh, spearheading at least. Yeah, I mean, it's it's astonishing. Also, the the way that the government has been talking about what's happening right now is not centering the approximately 200 Israelis of all ages that were kidnapped. It's, you know, these very militaristic sloganeering. Um, and the finding of the hostages is is just not publicly being prioritized or or spoken about in the way that it is historically when either individual Israelis or a couple at a time are taken. Mm. That's the focus of the whole country. And I think just, you know, the Netanyahu administration is so overtaxed on so many fronts, and they've also allowed the West Bank to get totally out of control. So I think they're they're just like totally all over the place, and, and it's really frightening. We're going to head to a quick break here, but when we return, we'll take a look at Benjamin Netanyahu's relationship with Western leaders before and after the attacks on October 7th. Stay with us. This message comes from Capital One, offering commercial solutions you can bank on. Now more than ever, your business faces unique challenges and opportunities. That's why Capital One offers a comprehensive suite of financial services, all tailored to your short and long-term goals. Backed by the strength and stability of a top 10 commercial bank, their dedicated experts work with you to build lasting success. Explore the possibilities at CapitalOne.com slash commercial, a member FDIC. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average. Get your quote at progressive.com and see if you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Support for NPR and the following message come from the Wallace Foundation, working to develop and share practices that can improve learning and enrichment for young people and the vitality of the arts for everyone. Ideas and information at wallacefoundation.org. Let's get back to the conversation with this message we got from a member of the text club. And Greg, I'll turn to you. They write, are there any Israeli leaders fighting for peace? Let me use that as a jumping off point just to ask how much disagreement there is about the path forward here uh, among those in power in Israel right now. Well, if we're talking about peace in in the short term, in the context of the war that's going on right now, I don't think anyone uh, in Israel in a position of authority is really pushing for that because of, as Laura mentioned before, the whole conception of Hamas has changed in Israel. What seemed like it was a manageable threat on Israel's border now seems like an intolerable threat. And there is sort of a broad agreement uh, within the political establishment and and with a wide swath of the public that there is a need for a military response to the massacre on October 7th. You do have, for example, as as Merov pointed out, the families of uh, Israeli hostages uh, who are suggesting that the government not continue this bombing campaign in Gaza. There are 
people pushing for that. But as a matter of government policy, uh, I, I don't really think anyone is in, in any significant way, which gets at you know the broader context of the whole idea of peace as a, a political issue mm-hmm. in Israel has really fallen off the map in the past few decades. You look back at the 1990s when there was a, a very significant peace camp. This was the era of the Oslo Accords. There were serious Israeli-Palestinian negotiations. Uh, there was a real hope that, that this conflict could be resolved. And that peace camp has shriveled. It is a, a shadow of what it used to be. And for the past few decades, despite the wars with Gaza every few years, despite uh, violence in the West Bank or periodic waves of attacks on Israelis by Palestinians, uh, there really has not been a significant constituency pushing for any kind of a, a peace agreement with the Palestinians. And a lot of that comes back to the the policies of Benjamin Netanyahu, who's been in power for most of that time. The U.N. Security Council held a meeting about Israel's war on Hamas last night. Uh, here's U.N. Secretary General Antonio Guterres. It is important to also recognize the attacks by Hamas did not happen in a vacuum. The Palestinian people have been subjected to 56 years of suffocating occupation. They have seen their land steadily devoured by settlements and plagued by violence, their economy stifled, their people displaced, and their homes demolished. Their hopes for a political solution to their plight have been vanishing. But the grievances of the Palestinian people cannot justify the appalling attacks by Hamas, And those appalling attacks cannot justify the collective punishment of the Palestinian people. So that was the UN Secretary General. Here is what Israel's ambassador to the UN said in response. Mr. Secretary General, the UN was established to prevent atrocities, to prevent such atrocities like the barbaric atrocities that Hamas committed. But the UN is failing The UN is failing, and you, Mr. Secretary General, have lost all morality and impartiality. Because when you say those terrible words that these heinous attacks did not happen in a vacuum, you are tolerating terrorism. And by tolerating terrorism, you are justifying terrorism. Mirav, I want to ask you to just react to the, that, that binary because we saw it on display uh, in Israel yesterday. You had the French president uh, visiting the country, standing side by side with the, the prime minister, uh, also acknowledging the fact that there has been a, a long history here preceding, preceding what happened on October the 7th. And uh, just to quote what Emmanuel Macron said, he said, this fight should be ruthless but not without rules because we're democracies that are fighting terrorists. Can you talk about the, the fine line that a number of these world leaders are, are towing here? Certainly we heard it at the U.N., uh, we've heard it on these visits to, to Israel as well. Well, you kind of have like two different things happening here. One is that the Western world, um, and specifically the U.S., um, you know, is in some in some aspects is, is feels like it's fighting radical Islam, and this is something that has you know happened with ISIS and with Al Qaeda, and this is being compared now to Hamas. They're being compared to ISIS and Al Qaeda, and you know the Western world uh, won't won't tolerate that, right? So that's kind of one kind of approach to what's happening. And from the very very get go, we heard Netanyahu, we heard Biden comparing Hamas to them and also saying it's the worst uh, attack on Jews since the Holocaust, uh, which, you know, factually is probably correct, but it politically I think is problematic. Um, so you have kind of that camp. And then on the other side, you have um, the kind of 
uh, over like the fact that Israel has basically been violating international law in a myriad of ways uh, as an occupying power, and it's it's almost insane that the fact that Israel occupies the West Bank and East Jerusalem, and to a varying degree Gaza from the outside um, for a long time now is 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 absent from this conversation. So you know the UN Secretary General, it's no secret that Israel and the UN don't get along, and the UN Secretary General, you might agree or not agree with what he said. Um, but the fact of the matter is that you know Israel is an occupying power, and it hasn't uh, been stood to account uh, for that. Certainly not on the international stage uh, for a very long time. So that has created a very polarizing effect, um, and 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 that's the real problem here. That there's no accountability, and that in some ways we reached this point where Israel had so much hubris going into this uh, current situation that. Uh, it just acted with impunity because the international community didn't do anything about it. Um, and so you have, you know, and then on the other hand, you have a Palestinian population that uh, has, you know, absolutely no future, nowhere to go. And when it has turned to nonviolent means, has been completely shut down and outlawed. Um, so you really have to look at it kind of in, in this context. Yeah, I want to flag again that we had a conversation yesterday about Palestinian leadership um, and sort of placing this conflict in its in its history. That conversations at the one a dot org and on the one a podcast. And Laura E. Atkins, let me let me bring you in here, have you react to what you just heard there from Mirav. But also, I'm curious how these comments from the likes of the French president, the German chancellor, President Biden, are kind of ringing out uh, across Israel. Sort of how how closely people are paying attention to uh, what these what these allies of Israel are saying on these visits to to Israel. Yeah, I think there's a couple things. Um, First of all, Israel has not actually been an occupying power over Gaza since 2005. They certainly control a lot of aspects of what comes in and out of the country. Um, but a lot of Israelis are looking at what happened right now and pointing to what was the unilateral withdrawal by Israel in 2005 from all of Gaza and pointing to it as an egregious mistake. I think it's also hard to say just how brutal these attacks were. And that is really, really resonating in a country where everyone is within a degree or two of separation from everyone else. I think also, as Mayrov said, the United Nations um, has a very long track record of denouncing Israel mm -hmm. on a myriad of things. So they've kind of lost credibility with most Israelis as a governing body. Um, but I think there very much is an attitude looking at President Biden's statements in particular and pointing out that, A, he's been surprisingly um, supportive of Israel's actions, but B, there is actually some frustration on a lot of people's minds with the idea that Biden is holding back either a ground invasion or other actions that Israel's military might otherwise take. So I think there is broadly speaking, support and gratitude for the statements from people we need to remember. These are Israel's allies, not just random countries. And it is a strategic alliance, not a humanitarian one. Um, but also, again, there is frustration and, you know, people are still reeling from this, this very, very violent and just vicious attack. Let's hear a bit from President Biden. He's addressed the, the conflict twice now, uh, once in a primetime address to the country last week. I know these conflicts can seem far away. And it's natural to ask, why does this matter to America? So let me share with you why making sure Israel and Ukraine succeed is vital for America's national security. You know, history has taught us that when terrorists don't pay a price for their terror, when dictators don't pay a price for their aggression, they cause more chaos and death and more destruction. 
The U.S. has sent Israel over $120 billion in aid over the last 75 years. Last week, President Biden asked Congress for more than $14 billion in, in aid for Israel in light of this attack. Uh, Greg Carlson, let me turn to you and just ask you about the case that the president has made. I'm sure you listened to that speech and tracked his remarks um, as, as he traveled to, to Israel. Um, how effective a case is he making? And, and just place that in the greater context here of, of the allyship that, that we were talking about just a moment ago about the, the role that the U.S. has played vis-a-vis Israel. I think linking Israel and Ukraine is something that president hopes will be an effective political tactic in Washington. There are a lot of Republicans who in recent months uh, have balked at the idea of sending more military aid or non-military aid to Ukraine. Uh, There is a real uh, exhaustion or fatigue, let's say, with American support for Ukraine within a, a portion of the Republican caucus. And so the president is hoping that by linking Israel and Ukraine together, Uh, that he might make supporting Ukraine more attractive for Republicans who certainly would agree to support Israel. So uh, I think in that sense, there's a very narrow political calculus in Washington. And sort of the the broader idea here of of making these uh, staunch public shows of of support for Israel and casting it as, uh, you know, a fight for the democratic world and so on, uh, you know, I think it, it reflects a broader strategy on Biden's part, which is that In public, he is being extremely supportive of the Israeli government. In private, uh, he is trying to put some pressure on the government uh, to come up with an endgame for this war in Gaza, figure out what the exit strategy looks like, and and also to try and restrain what Israel might do a little bit to try and prevent uh, the war in Gaza from turning into a broader regional war. That's what he tried to do uh, in 2021, for example, the last time there was fighting between Israel and Hamas and Gaza. Uh, It was this sort of bear hug strategy where you Mm. embrace them in public, but you sort of privately push them towards a ceasefire. I think the dynamics are very different this time, both because Israel has much more expansive aims with this war and because there is this regional dynamic as well. But uh, I think that's what the president is trying to do. Laura Atkins, I want to return to something we were talking about a little while ago. You were talking about the relationship between Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu and Hamas. I wonder if we could pull back a bit and just talk about his relationship to uh, other Palestinian leadership in, in the run-up to this. What has that relationship been like, his relationship with Mahmoud Abbas, and sort of how has that shaped or colored the, the response to this conflict? Yeah, I mean, it's first of all, it's very complicated. But in general, Mahmoud Abbas, although he has very radical politics in some ways, is is seen by some, if we're going to look at Palestinian leadership, as a legitimate prospective partner for peace. And Netanyahu is fundamentally opposed to the idea of a two-state solution. He may have mentioned it at previous speeches to kind of throw a bone to American Jews who, by and large, support such an idea. But all of his policy vis-a-vis Palestinian leadership has been designed to divide and keep separate um, Hamas and the Palestinian Authority. Um, So, you know, if we look back at 2008-2009, Hamas has not really faced any genuine military threat from Israel since then. In fact, since 2012, Israel has helped facilitate the transfer of cash from Qatar. Um, And in 2014, he basically enacted a policy that almost completely ignored the terrorism and rockets and shifted toward crackdowns in any sort of uprising in the West Bank. And Gaza and the West Bank are very different creatures. And his relationship with Abbas has basically consisted of doing everything he can to delegitimize the man, bringing up 
Holocaust denial comments from his past, for example, and trying to link Abbas to Hamas, which is legitimately a terrorist organization. Uh, Merv, let me have you respond to that, pick up on that as as well, um, just sort of how you've seen his attitude shape, um, yes, the response that we've seen to the, to the attacks, but also just sort of what, what's led to this moment in history. Um, I mean, you're talking about Netanyahu specifically, yes, yeah? Yes, exactly. Uh, uh, I mean, he's been around now for 15 years, 12 of them consecutively. I mean, he is the longest serving prime minister uh, Israel's ever had. He's a fluent English speaker who went to MIT. And he not only has he rejected um, any kind of political process with the Palestinians, and that's his career is made on that and on talking about the threat from Iran. He's been very clear on that. He's also a very, very savvy politician, and he does what serves his interests best. Uh, we also haven't mentioned that he's on trial for corruption, yeah. which, you know, um, it's kind of out, it's outrageous that it's become normal here for him to continue to serve and now lead Israel in its most important and in moment since 1948, uh, while he is not trusted by any of the security officials he's worked with. There's just, it's just so, it's just, it's just hard to kind of just convey how insane the situation is. Um, but, you know, I think more globally, not just on the Palestinian issue, which I think his rejectionism is quite clear, and, and also, you know, his annexationist, territorialist, maximalist policies in the West Bank um, are very clear. It's not just the far right. It's the Likud party today um, that he runs. But also globally, Netanyahu at some point just kind of, you know, waged a bet that the, the global far right the anti-Semitic far right in places like Hungary will become more and more powerful and he will align with them um, against Western liberal democracies because Israel, you know, it's kind of fighting for its democratic institutions, but you could argue easily that Israel does not, you know, fit in with a lot of the, the norms of a Western liberal democracy today for obvious reasons. But, you know, he, he, he bet on that and he's been quite successful. And Trump came in and kind of boosted that even more. So he, in some ways, you know, has been very successful. But at the same time, you see that he has brought this country to the brink of complete disaster and really has exposed the fact that um, the military and economic might that he has prided himself on just doesn't hold up without a strategy. And so a lot of people talk about how Netanyahu is the status quo man, how he doesn't make decisions, um, how he just averts risks. You know, that might be true. But there's also a very calculated um, strategy here of his own survival and of um, linking himself to forces in the world today that keep that up. And I think he's, he's doing a, still a good job at that. Coming up, we'll talk more about Netanyahu's legacy as the longest-serving prime minister in Israel's 75-year history. Stay with us. We'll be back after this short break. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Amgen, a biotechnology pioneer leading the fight against the world's toughest diseases such as cancer, heart disease, asthma, and osteoporosis. In a new era of human health, Amgen continues to accelerate the pace of change, operating sustainably and drawing upon deep knowledge of science to push beyond what's known today. With each decade, they reliably deliver powerful new therapies to patients. Learn more at Amgen.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Progressive Insurance, where drivers who switch could save hundreds on car insurance. Get your quote at Progressive.com today. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. 
This message comes from NPR sponsor ServiceNow, the AI platform for business transformation. AI is only as powerful as the platform it's built into. Enter ServiceNow. It puts AI to work for people across your business, providing intelligent tools to help remove frustration and supercharge productivity. And all of that is built into a single platform you can use right now. That's why the world works with ServiceNow. Learn more at servicenow.com slash AI for people. And we were talking about the state of Israel versus Benjamin Netanyahu. And Greg, let me turn to you on this point. We're talking about sort of his long history of being dogged by corruption charges. What, four or five times now there have been real referenda on on, on these allegations against him. Of course, his, his trial is underway and uh, the Supreme Court is, is, is weighing changes to uh, – considering changes to, to laws in Israel that could affect uh, his – position as, as prime minister in the country. Just give us the, in broad strokes here, um, what the allegations are against him and what he faces, what this trial centers on. I mean, some of the allegations are almost too convoluted and too ridiculous to, to give you a short answer to. But basically, he is accused of uh, accepting gifts from wealthy businessmen, uh, champagne, cigars, jewelry, that sort of almost very petty corruption. And then also uh, striking deals with various moguls in the media sector and the the telecommunications sector. And so he's accused of fraud and and breach of trust in these cases, which have dragged on for years. The investigations began in 2016. Uh, He was indicted in 2019. His trial started the following year. It's still ongoing. It probably will be ongoing for some time to come now. And and some of this stuff just reflects Netanyahu and his family, the fact that they have an appetite for the high life and they don't like paying for it. And this is something that uh, has long been known in Israel. But I think it also reflects a particular obsession with the media. Some of these allegations have to do with, with the trying to handicap the circulation of one newspaper to help another newspaper, for example. And this is a prime minister who has spent years throughout his long tenure Uh, trying to hobble Israel's public broadcaster. Uh, Sheldon Adelson, the American casino mogul, who was one of his main benefactors, uh, put untold millions of dollars into sponsoring a newspaper that has taken a a resolutely pro-Netanyahu line for years. Uh, And this is a prime minister who, even now, there's a war going on. There are 220 Israelis being held hostage in Gaza. Uh, the country and, and the region are at a boil at this point. And Netanyahu has spent a remarkable amount of time over the past few weeks meeting with the heads of of television news networks and briefing journalists and trying to massage his public image. He's someone who was always concerned about his political survival. And for him, a big part of that is the media. And and that's part of what led him to to be on trial for corruption now. Laurie Atkins, we have to to look at this in complement with the the protests that we've seen, the efforts to reform the judiciary. And we have a text from one of you. Israeli politics are at a critical juncture. Israel is on the verge of no longer being a, a democracy. Um, and that has been the, the allegation here, that, that this overhaul could fundamentally change uh, the structure of the Israeli state and the way that the country is is governed. So help us understand how we should look at those two two things in complement. Yes, the, the trial uh, of Benjamin Netanyahu, the prime minister, uh, but also these efforts that are underway that kind of dovetail with that uh, to change the way that the judiciary is structured in the country. Look, the most important thing to understand about Benjamin Netanyahu is his chief value is self-preservation. This is not a person who has principles in general. And for his right-wing allies in the Knesset, judicial reform is a large priority to undermine civil rights in Israel. Um, Since Israel lacks a constitution, the Supreme Court for a long time has been a quasi-upholder of 
civil rights within Israel, especially when there's an overreach of the majority. Now, it needs to be said also that the majority of Israelis actually do agree that some judicial reform is necessary without getting into the nuances of that. But the overreach from the Netanyahu administration comes primarily from his desire, A, not to be accountable for these corruption charges, and B, to appease his right-wing allies that are keeping him from facing accountability for these things. And another thing to understand about Netanyahu is he really sees the long game. And the pattern that you see demographically in Israel is almost the opposite of what happens in the United States. Here, the younger you are as a Jew in America, the more likely you are to be left-wing. Exactly the opposite trend is happening in Israel. So he's not only looking to appease his current right-wing allies, he's really looking ahead to the hubris of him is his next 10 years in office, which he probably still thinks he's going to have. Mayor, if I hear what what, what Laura is saying there uh, about Benjamin Netanyahu, and I think about sort of uh, American history, that's the prism through which I'm, I'm looking at this. And at times of war, often you see a person in power's um, reception <laughs> among the population rise, that he, he, he would get more popular support. Is the opposite of that happening? Am I, am I getting the, the right sense of that, that, that he's not he's not seeing his support buffeted in any way by by his response to to this attack on October 7th? Yeah, I mean, I would if this were any other prime minister, I would say that his career would already have been finished full stop. And, you know, it might have already been finished in the middle of war. But it's Netanyahu. So we can't really say that for sure. And I, I've spoken to a lot of uh, people, analysts. Uh, journalists here, and you know, they seem to think that he's finished. But I'm not convinced. And of course, they say it's a matter of time, right? Like it, it won't happen immediately. There's, you know, but and I think it rests on different factors. Um, but he's he's definitely lost. You know, I mean, he again, he already had lost it before. But at this point, you know, I think his own members of his own party, uh, there, there's reports that they won't name themselves, that they won't come out publicly, but. They're all kind of dying to to get out and and topple him. And honestly, I don't really understand what they have to lose at this point from doing mm-hmm. that. Um, so, you know, it, it just could be that the the consolidation of power is so deep and the mafia kind of approach is so so strong that it's just it's just not capable of doing that right now. Um, but you know, he is his own top security officials, like heads of the general security service who worked with him up until recently say that they don't trust him anymore to lead the country. Um, so it's, you know, it's hard to overstate just how, um, how hated he is um, and how not trusted he is and how much the sense of security in Israel is, is completely lost. Um, so the real question is how, you know, not only how are, is he going to be removed from power, which I think is probably a matter of time, but also who is going to take his place? Uh, because there, there isn't anyone really who, who can, you know, is anywhere near his stature in that way. And also nobody who's offering an alternative. And I, and I should uh, not to put too fine point on this, but this, this unity government is time limited. It's, it's designed to last just for the duration of, of, of this conflict, however long that is. That's right. That's right. And it's important to note that while there's rivalries between them on, on Gaza, there's, there's, no, there's no discord there, you know? Greg Carlson, we were talking about the, the relationship that Benjamin Netanyahu has with other leaders from around the world. And, and I'm curious sort of um, how he is regarded within the region. Um, so sort so, of so honing in on that, uh, we got a question from our text club. What has been the relationship of Israel to the leaders of Lebanon, Jordan, and Egypt? And I wonder if you could kind of field that, that question um, at this moment, sort of what kind of dialogue or relationship is there among um, closer neighbors? 
Uh, well, we'll start with Lebanon because that's the easiest one. There, there is no relationship between Israel and Lebanon. Uh, they did agree earlier this year to this uh, demarcation of their maritime borders, which is the closest they've ever come to any sort of formal diplomatic agreement. But that was something very narrow, uh, just to try and uh, allow Lebanon to explore for offshore oil and gas in the Mediterranean. But beyond that, these are two countries that are formally in a state of war. They have no diplomatic relations. Uh, there are messages, of course, that are passed indirectly between them by America or France or, or other countries that act as intermediaries. But there's no real relationship between the two countries. And they fought a war in 2006. Netanyahu's relationship with Jordan, uh, I would say, is consistently terrible. And, and that's been the case for decades. I mean, going back to the 1990s during stint as prime minister, when uh, the Mossad attempted to kill uh, Khaled Meshal, a, a leader of Hamas in Jordan, and sparked the whole international scandal that uh, had to be smoothed over eventually. So there's bad blood going back to the 1990s. And the Jordanians see Netanyahu correctly as someone who has no interest in a two-state solution, who who is interested in pursuing expansionist policies in the occupied West Bank. Uh, and so they see him as someone who they don't want to deal with on the Israeli side and who worries them because Jordan has a large Palestinian population and there's always always a fear about unrest uh, over the Palestinian issue in Jordan. The relationship with Egypt has been somewhat better uh, since 2013 when President Sisi took power there in a military coup. Uh, but the relationship with Egypt is primarily a security relationship. Uh, the armies talk to one another, the security services talk to one another. The heads of state tend not to talk that often. It's it's the coldest of pieces between those two countries. And so they will talk about things like Gaza, militancy on Sinai, uh, mutual security issues that they have. But the relationship doesn't tend to extend much further than that. Laura, I wanted to ask you just about what the response has been like in the United States to this attack and uh, what's what's happened since uh, yes you're you're in Israel now but of course your your news organization is um, focused on the American Jewish population and um, I wonder if you could just sort of describe what you've observed about how people here in the United States have have reacted to to what happened on October 7th and and what's happened since yeah absolutely I think a couple of things first of all the Jewish community in the United States is deeply divided but in general, it's more united than I've ever seen it before. There's just an immense outpouring of grief and support for Israel and coming together in collective mourning as a Jewish people. Um, we know from polling data that the overwhelming majority of Jews are pro-Israel and supportive of the state. I think also American Jews we know are overwhelmingly liberal and affiliated with democratic politics. And a lot of people are seeing the reaction, particularly among Americans under 30, um, is very divided toward Israel in a way that it just isn't in other generations. There was a poll that came out this week from Harvard, um, where a full 50% of Americans under 24 said that Hamas's terror attacks against Israel were justified, while simultaneously 61% um, said that they considered it a genocide, which is, I think, really alarming to a lot of American Jews who do see themselves as a part of this broader liberal movement and who want rights for Palestinians and do not generally like the Netanyahu administration but are finding themselves in this weird position where the Jewish state they feel is under assault 
and simultaneously people they felt were allies they feel have abandoned them. Um, also, we've seen domestic anti-Semitism mm-hmm. in general has been up since the Trump administration, but we've we've really seen an alarming number of anti-Semitic um, assaults and um, incendiary comments and vandalism, um, both globally and in the United States. So I think the American Jewish community, first of all, we're like two weeks out from this. Everyone is really still in shock. Um, but secondly, there's there's a real sense of being shaken as, as a people. About half of Jews live in Israel and another six million live in the United States. And I, I would say the overwhelming feeling is just, just deep grief. Mayor, just in, in closing here, I'd love to know uh, what you're going to be focused on or watching for here in the next few days or, or a couple of weeks, um, if that's just sort of what might happen with this war cabinet, obviously what might happen with, with uh, any kind of military action. What, what are you paying the closest attention to? Yeah, well, I mean, as part of my, my job, uh, I, I need to pay attention to the uh, potential for escalation of violence and conflict. Um, and so me, my colleagues and I at Crisis Group are keeping very close eye on the, on the region in general, on what's happening with Lebanon, Syria, even Iraq, um, and of course, Iran. Um, and, you know, the thing about this war, the way it's developing is that things are happening very in- gradually, incrementally, slowly in this kind of harrowing, tedious way. Mm. Um, and there's, of course, tons of disarray inside the Israeli uh, political echelon. And and so it's, and every move will will kind of have a counter, a counter response or another move or trigger a different reaction. So, um, it's it's very hard to predict what's going to happen, but basically, I'm looking to see, you know, if Israel succeeds, goes into the into Gaza on the you know ground invasion and starts to succeed too much, that could trigger a reaction from the north, from Hezbollah or other you know parts of the axis. Um, if Israel uh, doesn't doesn't do well and it's clearly being hit hard. Um, what what is that going to mean for its security, for its deterrence? And you know, I think that the the U.S. has a stake of course, in restoring Israel's deterrence and security, because we're talking here about a larger regional issue. um, And the U.S. has clearly put itself behind Israel. And so I'm going to be looking very closely at how uh, the things develop on the ground. And I'm also looking at, touching on what Laura talked about a little bit, the the reverberations of this conflict that go well beyond not just Israel-Palestine and even the Middle East, but across the world, uh, which, you know, just the social media, the disinformation, the insightful language. This is these are things that are already affecting mm. not just Jews but also Palestinians and Muslims around the world. Um, and I'll also be looking at the West Bank and East Jerusalem, which are places that are extremely violent but haven't gotten enough attention. And I would also implore the audience uh, to keep an eye on that area as well. Mayor of Sunshine, Senior Analyst on Israel-Palestine at the International Crisis Group. Laura E. Atkins is the Opinion Editor at The Forward and has been reporting in Israel since the war began. Greg Karlstrom was with us as well, Middle East correspondent for The Economist and the author of the book, How Long Will Israel Survive the Threat from Within? Today's producer was Jorgelina Manrea. The program comes to you from WAMU, which is part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm David Gura, in for Jen White. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. 
Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts.